Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, February the 25th, 2023. It is currently 3.33 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And I know it's Saturday, and this is already part two in our study. Is it part two or is this part three? I think this is part three. This is already part three and our study on John chapter 4, where technically we're not even supposed to begin till tomorrow. Yeah, this is part 3. So welcome everyone to part 3 in our study of John chapter 4. It's numbers. I always get numbers confused. It is amazing, like, how bad I am at remembering numbers, right? Like, when it comes to numbers, it's just like there's a mental block. I can't, like, you can give me a number. I'm like, I'm going to forget it in five seconds. I cannot remember numbers. Someone's like, definitely part three. Thank you very much for telling me it's part three. See, I, I, I just, I should have known I was the one who typed it out. Bible study exercise, John chapter four, part three. I go live and immediately like, welcome everyone to part two, part one, part 18. I don't know which number. I'm always messing up the numbers. It's weird. Like there's some, I I don't like numbers. I can remember ideas. I can remember so many things, but when it just a phone, like a a simple phone number, I will, I'll never remember a phone number. This is, this is, just a little side road here, right? Just a little side road, just to help you understand this. I worked in the same building, the same hospital for like over 10 years of my life, right? And so there was all these numbers. There's the front desk number and there's the OBGYN desk. And there's like all these numbers that I would need to call for different reasons. And I never could, I couldn't, I didn't remember one number. Now, most of the time I didn't call people. I would get up and go walk to wherever I needed to go because I would rather walk than email or or, or call, I would just walk over to the place and have the conversation with people. That was, to me, much more fun than just calling. But anytime anytime I needed a number, I would ask someone, hey, what's the number? And they'd be like, you've been here for 15 years. How do you not remember the number? I'm like, that's why you're here, to remember it for me. So whenever I get my numbers wrong and my podcast episodes, I need someone to come along going, you have 15 part fives. When are you going to realize you're, you're giving part five, you're naming everything part five, and it's actually part 15 now, right? Law and gospel, we say we've done 70-something messages. See, it's a number. I'm not going to remember it. And you've got part three. You got 23 of them. So yeah, I'm, I'm really bad at numbers. So, but to now make it clear, this is John chapter four, part three for our Bible study exercise, and it's only Saturday when technically we're supposed to begin tomorrow, but we got an early start. And I hope you're happy with that. I hope you were very happy with it. John chapter four, you're supposed to be reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it, and reading it, and reading it. You're supposed to be talking about it. I've given you some things to look at. Let's go back to John chapter four and just read briefly a little bit here. John chapter four to set everything up. John chapter four, verse one. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. 
I'm not going to remind you of what you're supposed to be working on there to figure out, but you need to go back and work on that. All right. He, he must needs, that's important, Samaria. You're supposed to be doing a little work on Samaria and understand everything about the region and everything going on there. I, I'm not going to give everything away. I'm just kind of briefly reminding you of your assignments. Then verse five So he must needs go through Samaria, verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. I want to say Sychar, but it looks like everyone else says Sychar. Uh, and we, you need to know everything about this city, Sakar. Obviously, we don't seem to know where it is today. It no longer exists. But you need to have some idea about Sychar and any significance there. Near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Now, there's Jacob's well. I gave you some assignments to do on Jacob's well, finding all the places that's mentioned in the Bible and any significant events that occurred at Jacob's well, just to see if there's anything that we need to remember from that. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And earlier today, we really focused on the well and the woman, the well and the woman. And we know that that well is now, it's located today in 2023. It's inside a church and that church was built in 380 AD. It's been destroyed multiple times for different reasons, but the well is still there. The church is there. You can go visit it today. It's there. It's it's for you to see. So I wanted you to, to do a little research into the church and and just learn everything about it because I thought that would be interesting. And I wanted you to do a little research in to the woman because the woman in church history was given a name and she has a feast day where she is remember she is remembered. And that feast day for the Greek Orthodox Church is tomorrow. So I wanted you to study the church and I wanted you to study the woman. Now, I want to do this because as soon as I got done with the live broadcast earlier, my email box filled up with debate on how you pronounce the name of the church. No, not really. I don't think anyone really was debating on how to pronounce the name of the church. Everyone was uh, debating on how to pronounce the name of the woman. And uh, there was lots of arguing about there. So I went and listened and I found three. <laughs> I found Justin going to different videos, all kinds of different ways of, of going through these. So we'll go through these quickly. The, the, most everyone seemed to think that the, the way we should pronounce the name of the church. I said St. Uh, Fatina, I think is how I said it. Mo said, no, it's St. Fotina, right? So I said, Fatina. I think I actually said at the beginning, I should probably say Fotina. But what happened is I listened to something. It was from a Greek Orthodox church. And I, I, I can almost guarantee you, they did not say Fotina. They said Fatina. And it may have been because of the accent. It may have been because of their accent. But they, it definitely had a fa sound, not a fo sound, but I could see why Fotina would make more sense. So, all right. So we can go with St. Fotina. And again, you should, you should see theholyland.net, see theholyland.net, look up Jacob's Well. There's an entire entry there about Jacob's Well being inside this church, St. Fotina. All right. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of argument about that. But remember the name of the woman at the well in history, she was given the name P-H-O-T-I-N-I, P-H-O-T-I-N-I. I said Fatini, some said Fotini, and someone uh, emailed me and said, it's Fotini, it's Fotini. So Fatini, Fotini, uh, 
Photonai. I, and I think there was even a fourth, I think there was even a fourth one, if I remember correctly. So there was some debate and arguing about the name. And I appreciate it. Look, I appreciate making sure we get this right. I just find it interesting that nobody seems to be able to agree, which I find interesting. But hopefully, hopefully, we won't get so caught up if it's Fot- Fotani, or uh, I mean, and go back to the name of the church, if it's uh, a, a, a Fotina. Fatina, Fotina, Fatina. I hope we don't get so caught up in whether fo or fa or Fotini, Fatini or Fotini. I hope we don't get so caught up on that that we miss really the, the, the spirit of the assignment, which is go learn everything about the church, whether you want to call it Fotina or Fatina. And look up everything about the church, really just explore it, know this historical site. And some say it's the most authenticated holy site in the Holy Land, which I think is important. So Fotina, Fatina. And then I wanted you to really dig into not how to pronounce her name as much as, well, when did they come up with this name? And did she actually suffer under Nero? And was she persecuted? And was she killed by being thrown down a well in 66 AD? That's what I really wanted you to to work on. But again, if you want to call her Fotini, Fotini, or Fotini, whichever you feel more comfortable with, be my guess. There's obviously there's a correct way to say it. It just found it funny that um, even the people arguing could not agree on. No, it's Fotini. No, it's Fotini. No, it's Fotini. No, it's okay. You get it's Fotini. All right, it's it's just funny, but um, I do appreciate that. But please don't allow that to distract you from what I really want you to find. I want you to find out, like, where did this name come from? And what does the name mean? That's important. Um, Did this really happen? Or did it become a myth, uh, kind of a mythological tale, kind of this embellished tale of of this woman and and all of those kinds of things. Now, ultimately, remember, the Bible doesn't give her her name and doesn't give us this information. So the Bible's just focusing on the encounter with Jesus. So that means... Is the story there for us to focus on the woman or is the story there for us to focus on Jesus? That raises a lot of questions as well. But just so you know, I'm aware of all of the the discussion today, but I want to advance this, all right? And we're getting a we're getting a really good start on John chapter four. I think we're doing a really I think we're doing a good job, but let's advance this a little further and we're gonna have a little bit of fun. So here's what happened. Well, I was looking up videos. From Greek Orthodox, you know, from uh, Greek Orthodox churches and Greek Orthodox ministries, so I could hear if it's Fotini, 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 if it's Fotina, if it's Fatina. Well, I was listening to all of the. Okay, wait, how did they say it? How did they say it? How did they say it? Well, I was just listening to all of that just to verify the different emails, and and because some of them provided links somewhere in the midst of doing all of that. All of a sudden, a video pops up on YouTube that says, have we gotten John chapter 4 wrong? And I'm like, whoa, did we? I don't know. You tell me. Did, did, I, did I get John chapter? I haven't I haven't done anything in John chapter 4. What did I do wrong? What, tell me, YouTube, what did I do wrong? So the algorithm for YouTube wanted me to watch a video. So I'm like, okay, it's about John chapter 4 and asking the question, have we all gotten John chapter 4 wrong? So you know what I did? 
well, after I got done listening to all Fotini, Fotini, <laughs> Fotini, after I got done watching all of that, I'm like, grab that audio. I'll go live. I'll tell everyone all of the fun we're having with the names, but then we'll try to find out, have we all gotten John chapter four wrong? I don't know what they think we possibly have gotten wrong. I'm curious. So we're going to do a little review. So sit back, John chapter four. I don't know where this, I don't know the name of this ministry. I don't know anything. I just, I just saw the video. I, I don't know how good this is going to be or how bad this is going to be, but I thought it would be fun to listen to someone who's really concerned that all of us have gotten John chapter four wrong. So I want to know what we got wrong. So here we go. Is it possible that for your entire life, you've heard the story of the woman at the well, and yet there's an aspect of this story that you've been taught wrong? Today, I'm going to ask you to take off your glasses of assumption. The, the presuppositions that we bring into a text. And I'm going to ask you to study with me John chapter 4 as we look at the woman at the well and see that there actually is something about this story that I think we've gotten wrong many times. All right. Now, I, I, I personally believe, and I've already thrown out my hypothesis, I think there's something we've gotten wrong. And you know what I think, right? I, I, I am still at least, put it, put it this way, I've at least put forth the theory the thesis, the hypothesis that when we read and he must needs go through Samaria, I still believe we've gotten that wrong in the way it's typically preached because it's like typically it's preached. He must needs to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment to meet this woman. He had to go there to evangelize this woman. And I think he had to go through Samaria because he was trying to get away from the Pharisees who possibly were upset because he was making more disciples than John. I, th I possibly think that, or at least they were concerned. I could be wrong. I've So far, I've only suggested it. I'm still waiting for emails in regards to that. It's funny. Everyone was quick to come to the emails about, no, it's Fotini. It's Fotini. It's Fotini. It's it's. Uh, uh, Fotina are all the different things that I was hearing. Everyone was ready to jump in on that. No one was ready to tackle my hypotheses. So that that's, that's frustrating, but, 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 but we'll see if he's, I'm curious if that's what he thinks we got wrong or if he's found something else that we've gotten wrong. And I'm going to be very much interested to hear what that is. So the intro to this video was not clickbait. I feel that sometimes there are there are assumptions that we bring into a text that we just assume are true and that then colors our understanding of what's actually being said in the scriptures. Now, the assumptions that we bring into the text often come from our Sunday school, they come from children's church or youth camp or or whatever, you know, whatever influences that have that have brought God's word to us. Now, I, I so agree with this, and I'm all constantly trying to warn people about this. When you're listening to a sermon, you constantly have to be asking yourself, is this information coming from the text? Is it arising from the text, or is it being imposed on the text? And it's so, it's sometimes that's very subtle. You're like, well, he, they were preaching from John chapter four. Clearly it was coming from the text, but sometimes it's like, no, 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 no. You don't realize what was happening. They were imposing that on the text. That's not coming from, that's being placed on. 
And you've got to catch that because once something is placed on the text and you just accept it, then that becomes your presupposition and that becomes the glasses in which you wear every time you read the text and you constantly read it back into the text. You think it's there when it was never actually there. That's why I constantly say when we come to a text, I don't care how many times we've read it. I don't care how many times it's been taught. For me, I don't care how many times I've preached it. I don't care how many podcast episodes I've done about it. What I always attempt to do is immediately forget everything I've ever said about the text. I never use old notes. I don't keep notes. I delete, I throw away, I burn, whatever I got to do. Because if I rely on any past study, if I was imposing something on the text in that previous study, if I use that information, I will continue to impose it on the text in the new study. So we always have to come to the text and forget everything. It doesn't matter how many sermons you've heard. It doesn't matter how many, th- you just have to approach it like, this is the first time I'm studying it. And everything you've ever known about it has to be forgotten. It has, and I know people say that's just ridiculous, that's not realistic, but if you if you don't do that, then you will continue to read your presupposition into the text, and if that presupposition is wrong, you'll never see the text for what's really there. You'll always see what you think is there. We have to stop that, and I blame sermons for that because sermons are so much about not really dealing with the text as but preaching concepts and ideas into the text. I think sermons keep people from the text. You know my feelings on the entire sermon concept, the way it's typically done in churches. I want to burn that to the ground because it's so much like the preacher comes up with an idea he comes up with an outline and he just imposes it on the text. They will tell you, no, 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 no. It came from the text. But I'm telling you, so many times it's it's clearly being imposed. And it's hard to sometimes see the difference. But what does he think we got wrong? What, what, what presupposition does he think we've been bringing to the story of the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, this encounter Jesus had? This isn't a bad thing. Uh, actually, the, the presuppositions, the assumptions that we make about the text often help guide us. Uh, they, they, it's... I disagree. I think you're always bad. I think you're always bad. I know, I know someone's going to, well, you have certain presuppositions you bring to the text. I understand that there may be, like, I, obviously I bring a presupposition to the text that it's the inspired word of God. I understand that there are some, but I want to do everything I can to try to eliminate those as much as humanly possible. I don't think they're ever good, and I don't think they ever guide us. I think they typically keep us from the text. So I have a, a stronger opinion on this than this individual. The, the knowledge that we have from previous truth uh, brought into the text that helps us to understand what's being said. However, there's a danger. And the danger is that our vision of what's going on in God's Word can actually become more focused on what we are looking through, our assumptions of the text, rather than what the text actually says. So I'm going to ask you today to sort of take off the assumptions of this text. And and I want us to recognize that there are some things that we have gotten right through the years. I believe there are some aspects of this passage that, that pastors, Bible teachers, Bible curriculum typically do a really good job of. Uh, let me highlight those here at the beginning. I think we typically do a good job highlighting the the parts of the the, the aspects of the culture 
that Jesus had to look beyond in order to minister to the Samaritan woman. And if you're not familiar with the passage, it's in John chapter 4, is uh, Jesus is uh, going through Samaria and he's ministering to this woman. And why don't we look at the verse right above us, John chapter 4, verse number 1. The Bible says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, verse 3, he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, what we find in this passage is we see Jesus Christ intentionally traveling through an area that was that was not really necessary. If you look at a map and you look at where uh, Jerusalem was located and where Galilee was located in the northern portion, uh, what you find is that the, the journey from Jerusalem to Galilee, often the Jews would go there along the river and they would bypass Samaria altogether. But the Bible tells us in this passage that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And I think pastors do a really good job pointing this out. Um, often we see the, the concept of divine appointments um, highlighted in the text, and we see the, the reality that, um, that there, are, there are appointments that God brings along our path, people that Okay, now see, I, this is where I, okay, it's funny, he's doing a video about what we get wrong, and I feel like he's getting this wrong. Let me state this again. Are you saying that all the other places Jesus went wasn't because of divine appointment? I mean, it, I mean, he was doing the will of the Father, right? Wasn't everything, I mean, I mean, when you think about it, if God is sovereign and he works all things according to his good pleasure and will, and he decrees whatever comes to pass, now I know we can get into a whole theological discussion here, then, then isn't everything a sense of divine appointment in some way, shape, or form? Like, I, I don't know, like, it's just weird. Like, we get to John, oh, this is a, this is a divine appointment. So, the other places in John, because it doesn't say he must needs, wasn't a divine appointment. See, I, I, I think the must needs, and I'm going to state it again, my hypothesis is his, he must needs go through Samaria because the Pharisees were bothered here. The Pharisees seemed to be bothered or upset here. They, they, that they knew that he was making more disciples. And so they either perceived him as a possible threat or, or they, they, and he didn't want to deal with them. So what does he do? He leaves Judea. He goes into Galilee and then he goes through Samaria. Why does he go through to Samaria? If he goes through Samaria, nobody, those, those Pharisees and others, I, I'm at least what I can tell, there's a high probability or at least a possibility that would have been like, we're not following. We're not going with that. And it, and it got him away from it. That's at least my, but everybody wants to grab onto this thing. See, this is a divine appointment. I don't know. I'm at least, throw, I'm at least, I'm, I'm just at least throwing it out there. You, you can, you can, it just seems like, oh, he must needs. This was a divine appointment. So every time it doesn't say he must needs, it wasn't a divine appointment. So when Jesus had that encounter with Nicodemus in John 3, I mean, you know, uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, I mean, I mean, was it must needs that Jesus was right there so Nicodemus could find him? Or should the text said it, it must, he must need, like, I, I just, I mean, there's all kinds of these encounters that Jesus has. If the text doesn't say he must needs go here, he must needs go there, were those other encounters not divine appointments? So I, I, I at least raise that question. All right, let's see what he's gonna, where he's gonna go. I still want to know what he thinks we get wrong. That God brings along our path, 
And our job is to share Christ with them. And Jesus needed to go through Samaria, sort of make that geographical detour uh, to go through this area because he, he wanted to minister to this particular woman. See, and that's how everyone reads it. He must needs because he had a divine appointment. He wanted to minister to this woman. I'm not saying that it wasn't a divine appointment, but maybe the must needs just flows from the fact that there's something developing here with the Pharisees. On this particular day, at this particular time, at that particular well. And so Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He, he crossed geographical barriers to get there. Uh, typically, like I said, the Jews would travel around Samaria. Uh, number two, Jesus crossed ethnic barriers. The the tension that that was felt at this time, it was a very real and very difficult tension between the Samaritans and those who were Jews. Now, from a historical perspective, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12, when the kingdoms were divided under Sol, after Solomon's reign, uh, the, the northern kingdom, um, actually the, the southern kingdom was spared, from the Assyrian army, but the northern kingdom was, many of them were forced to intermarry with the Assyrian invaders, and, and really they became kind of ethnic mongrels, if you want to call it that. Um, and, and really from that time forward, the, the issues between the Samaritans, which who were forced to intermarry with the Assyrians, and those who were fully Jewish, that, that conflict, that, that distrust just grew. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us in Ezra chapter 4 that the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple. But you realize the Jews told them, no, no, thank you. We don't want your help. So, so then the Samaritans stood in opposition to Nehemiah and his plans to rebuild the wall. Uh, the Samaritans built their own temple in Mount Gerizim. By the way, that's important because later in our text, the Samaritan woman is going to ask a question about where we should where we should worship. Do we worship on our in our temple or should we worship in Jerusalem? And she's asking that because the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They were forced to because they were not allowed to come and worship at the temple. So there was this distrust, this hatred, this mutual avoidance and this hostility that occurs between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so Jesus was willing to cross those ethnic barriers in order to speak to this Samaritan woman. But then Jesus also crossed religious barriers. And, and following along that same line, you know, there was a separate temple, separate system of worship. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that you may want to make sure you're writing some of these references down because you're, one of your assignments is to work on Samaria, right? Now you're getting a little idea of, the region of Samaria, who the Samaritans were, uh, you 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 are you are getting you're getting some of this. Uh, you're 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 getting uh, you're getting some information about Samaria, the 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 conflict between the Samarians and and the Jews. You're you're getting you're getting some of this information. You're getting some uh, cross references from Ezra, and they uh, they offered to help rebuild the temple, and they were turned down. You're getting a lot of good information that will help you fill in some of that. You can just start looking up some of these references and look up some of this uh, this information. King Jeroboam set up a completely new system. It was kind of a mixture of worship between Jehovah and false gods, and we see that in 1 Kings chapter 12 through 17. And, and so Jesus is willing to talk to someone who, though they believed in Jehovah and they understood Jehovah, 
really did not have a full grasp of the reality of Jesus and the Messiah, and and Jesus was willing to walk across those, really those religious barriers, and talk to someone who religiously was at odds with what the Jews were doing there in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus stepped across gender barriers, and I know this is one that today we don't fully grasp, because in our culture, and, and I believe for most people watching this video, you would agree with this, in our culture, though we would agree that men and women are created differently, we recognize that they are equal in value. Uh, in the husband-wife relationship, though there are differences, we are equal in value before God. Though in the church there are different roles and responsibilities we have, there is a quality of value with God. And, and in their culture, that was not the case. In their culture, there was not an equality of value necessarily. Uh, women, <clears throat> women were considered property. Uh, talking to a woman without witnesses, that was just, that was something that you did not do. W women were, were not really companions. They weren't someone that you talked to. Even husbands. Uh, husbands did not interact with their wives in public. The wife would walk behind the husband. and The, the wife was really an inferior position. Um, we actually see this, and it's something that comes up in the Old Testament. We see that wives were often considered possessions. Uh, you, even, in, even in the Ten Commandments, do you notice how the, the command not to covet is not to covet all of these possessions of your neighbor, and part of that is your neighbor's wife? And I realize when we read that, we ju we're just thinking, well, you're not to covet your neighbor's wife, but it's, it's in a long list of possessions. You're not to covet his house his servants, his, his oxen. Uh, you're not to covet any of those things or his wife. And the wife is sort of listed there with the possessions. Uh, wives had very little control in marital relationships. Uh, the power to divorce in the Old Testament was given to the men. Um, wives, we never see that. We never see that even discussed where a wife can walk away from her husband because of for any reason it just not it's not discussed though it is discussed for for husbands and for men and so Jesus sort of broke across that gender barrier as he sat down with this woman and began talking with her in fact all throughout Christ's ministry Jesus this has given us good information I just want to know so what did we get wrong now I think he's already got wrong when the must needs I don't know I don't agree with his approach to that but I want to know now what he thinks maybe I get wrong so let's let, we're still waiting Jesus Jesus elevates women he spoke to them he talks with them he communicates with them he fellowships with them he becomes their friend and in fact he makes them heroes of his parables and it was actually women that were the first to find his empty tomb and so Jesus elevates women, recognizing their value, recognizing their equality when it comes to their importance. Uh, but Jesus also crossed, really crossed some social barriers. Uh, this is something that, again, is often mentioned correctly, that here this woman is um, at the well in midday, and she was there by herself for a reason. Uh, this woman was most likely a social outcast. Uh, she was a woman that the other townswomen would not socialize with or maybe even gossiped and talked about her. She was there by herself in the heat of the day, not when women typically went to draw water, but it was most likely because she was avoiding people and really for good reason. The Bible does tell us that she had had five husbands 
and the man that she was living with wasn't her husband. So that's and that's good information there. I think there's a lot. It is the middle of the day. You can look up to uh, sixth hour. You can see what time that was because uh, I believe it was the sixth hour when they have the the conversation. Let me see here. Yeah, it was about the sixth hour. Uh, then cometh the woman of Samaria to draw uh, water. And then she doesn't know why he's talking to her. And it's like Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there, there, there you have. So that, that's, that's painting the picture, giving us some good historical background. You want to grab onto that, that she would have been possibly very much a social outcast, isolated and alone. And obviously a very, 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 very scandalous past, especially in that culture. Imagine her reputation. Imagine what people thought of her. I'm just reminded of this truth. I'm so thankful that God is gracious. I'm so thankful that God's grace is not based on our deserving it. Because this woman did not deserve God's grace. She was a sinner, just like you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And I would just add that we're so good about preaching God's grace to someone who's lost and then they can become saved. We're just not so wonderful about God's grace after you're saved. See, before you're saved, it doesn't matter how bad you messed up. Come to Jesus. It's all gone. Now, once you're saved, if you messed up, then it's like, I'm so sorry. So God's gracious, but there's always a but. There's always a however. There's always like, well, yeah, you can be forgiven, but, and then we start handing out what we think the consequences should be. We start like, nope, you can't do this. You can't do that. This, you're done. You're finished. You're destroyed. You can never speak again. You will just go throw yourself off a cliff because you messed up. It's like, well, God's grace is wonderful for the lost person. That grace should be just as powerful and just as wonderful and just as amazing for those who are saved as well. Thankful that God is omniscient. He's all, he's, he's, he's uh, all knowing. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But do you realize God is all gracious as well? God is willing to show grace to those who do not deserve it. And God's grace reaches down here to this woman and he says to her in verse number 13, Whosoever drinketh this, of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus says, if you'll just drink of this water that I offer to you, it'll be water that you will never thirst again, water that you will, that will fulfill and will satisfy. And really, that was her deepest need. It was a woman. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sitting there trying to hit pause and it won't stop. Okay, I got to st- come in really quick because we, because this is an issue that I'm going to bring up throughout this week in our study of John chapter four. When everyone says, hey, that her greatest need was there was no satisfaction. Her greatest need was she kept, no, her greatest need was she was a sinner who needed salvation. But see, we always, this almost always gets preached that come to Jesus and you'll be perfectly satisfied. Come to Jesus. You'll never thirst again. You'll never need anything. Well, I want to find me a Christian who is just perfectly content and happy with Jesus and nothing else. They don't need anything else in their life. They don't need friends. They don't need it. They don't need a companion. They don't need a spouse. They don't, they just have Jesus and they are good to go. 
Because we sing, we, we talk that game, but you look at Christians and they seem completely discontent with so many. They, they want this and they need this and they, and they're unhappy about this and they're frustrated by this and they're mad about this and they want a better house. They want a better, I thought Jesus satisfies completely. Jesus satisfies our spiritual need for salvation completely. See, I, I think that's the only way to understand it. I'm going to back this up again because I was trying to pause it. Uh, here we go. Water that you will never thirst again. Water that you will, that will fulfill and will satisfy. And really, that was her deepest need. It was a woman who was thirsty. See, was her greatest need was because she was thirsty or was her greatest need because she was a sinner and needing of a savior? Does Jesus come to save us from our dissatisfaction, us, us not being satisfied in life, and he's going to give us complete satisfaction? A woman who was thirsty. Now, I started this whole, this whole video out by saying that there are portions, there are portions of this, there's a, a portion of this passage that I think we've taught incorrectly. I think we've maybe missed something because we are, are so busy teaching an aspect of the story that's not in the text that we miss what really is in the text. And I believe what we do find in this text that we've often missed, and then in a second we're going to look at something that we've often added in that's not there. Um, I believe what we miss is that the primary problem that this woman had was not her sin. Now, I'm not saying that she was not a sinner. I'm not saying that... Wow. He thinks that we miss what her primary problem was, that her primary problem wasn't sin. He he's saying he he's acknowledging that she was a sinner, but that wasn't the major problem. Okay. Oh, well, I, we're going to hear this out. We're going to hear this out. You're not a sinner or I'm not a sinner. Our problem is sin. But Jesus really isn't addressing her sin here. Jesus is addressing her thirst. He over and over talks about the water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst. Here he is sitting at the well and he's using this analogy of water. And he's not talking about water that if you, if you use this water, you'll wash away your sins. Water, if you just drink of the water that I offer to you, you, you'll be clean. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you'll just drink of this water, you'll never thirst. He was dealing with a spiritual thirst that she had, a spiritual need for, for a spiritual, something to refresh her spiritually. And she doesn't get it. But what can refresh you spiritually other than salvation? I do understand Jesus is not saying this will wash away your sin, but is he not just using the concept, the, the analogy of thirst to say, look, all this stuff in this life, you're going to be left empty. You're going to be left desiring. You're going to be left thirsty because your real issue is a spiritual thirst that can only be satisfied in salvation. Right, that your thirst is you're you're thirsting for that which will not help and will not satisfy, and only salvation will be the thing that because all of this is just your sin. Like the satisfaction is salvation. I I oh I I I want to I want to try to be fair with this. Jesus makes the comment 
She responds to him in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Uh, she, she, she takes this comment that Jesus Christ makes about the spiritual, and she brings it right back to the physical. She doesn't quite understand yet the reality of what Jesus is saying to her. So Jesus is then going to take this conversation into a place that's very uncomfortable, and it's uncomfortable for her. And to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for us as well, because we're talking about a woman who has, who has gone through some very difficult times in life, some very, some very trying times. And for all that we have heard about this text in years gone by, it through maybe in sermons or Bible lessons or flashcards that you've had in children's church, for all that we've heard, I think we have to be careful that we separate out what we've heard from what the text actually says. And this is where I believe we can so easily put on these glasses, okay? This is... This is what we've heard, therefore we just kind of read it into the text. And I think we have to be careful of that because we, we don't want to add into the text what's not there. These, these are what I call dangerous assumptions. It's when we bring our ideas into the Bible and then we interpret it through that lens. Okay, the first day. Now, look, I completely agree, but I think you've brought your own assumptions in. Right? You've, assu- you've assumed that Jesus must needs to go through Samaria because it was a divine appointment instead of possibly considering the fact that he must needs to go through Samaria to get away from the Pharisees who could possibly be ticked off because he's now getting more disciples than John and they, they may be concerned. Right? Like, like you didn't even consider that. Then you brought in your own assumption. Well, clearly this, the problem here with this woman is not her sin. It's her thirst. She just needs to be satisfied. And so Jesus has come to take care of her satisfaction. But what's causing the thirst? Is it not the sin? So what's the only hope? Salvation. And that's, and that brings a satisfaction as far as now you're satisfied perfectly that your sins have been taken care of. There is forgiveness. You can't preach this or you come to Jesus and now you're just perfectly satisfied and you no longer will ever need or want anything because we know that's not true. So it's, it's, I find it funny because he's saying, don't bring in your assumptions. And that we all do. So now he's saying, he's getting ready to say, here's the assumptions we're all guilty of bringing in or that others are guilty of bringing in. But I just, I think I've already demonstrated he's brought in his own assumptions. So let's see which assumption he thinks we, we, we add to the text. Dangerous assumption is this, that she lies about her marital status. She does not lie about her marital status. Notice what she says. Jesus said in verse number 16, he says, go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Please understand, she was absolutely correct. Jesus even responds and says, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. You are correct when you say you have no husband. She did not lie. Okay, now, he he thinks that we always assume that she lied. Okay, let's go with that idea. Let's say she did not lie. We'll see where he takes it. But is it possible? Is it? I'm going to throw out the pot. I'm going to throw out a hypothesis here. I'm, going to, I'm just going to throw this out there. Is it possible that she spoke the truth in order to hide the fact that she'd been married all of those times? In other words, sometimes you can speak truth 
It's actually true, but you're speaking the truth in order to deceive. In other words, you can deceive by lying, but sometimes you can deceive by saying something that's true, but you're not giving the whole story, right? You can lie by just straight up making up something, right? I'll, I'll try to give you, I'll try to give you an example. You're, you're, you can wake up late for work. You can wake up and you're, you're going to be late to work. You know, you're going to be late to work, right? You, you look at the clock and you're like, Oh my goodness, I'm going to be late. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to be late because I'm basically late already. And the, because the alarm clock didn't go off and I just realized it. So you jump, you, you jump up, you get your clothes on, you get ready and you start driving to work. All right. I, I think I said church. You're late for church. Okay. For me, for me, for me, it's going to church for work. Okay. But you get the idea. Going to work. Right. So you're going to work. You know, you know, you're already late. There's, I mean, it's just a fact. You are late, but all of a sudden you realize, oh man. There's a bad tra- uh, traffic accident up here. Oh, and traffic is backed up. Oh, man, this is going to make. Oh, this is going to work perfectly. So you get to work. And what do you say? I'm late. There was a traffic accident. Now, it's true. There was a traffic accident. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So you're not lying. It's absolutely true. But you're saying that. And you know you're saying that to cover up the real fact that you were going to be late, traffic accident or no traffic accident. If all the tra- if there was no car and no red lights anywhere between your house and your job, you were still going to be late because basically you were late when you woke up. So instead of saying, look, I was late because I was running behind. No, you're like, no, I was late because there was a traffic accident. The problem is, you know, you're stating the truth in order to deceive. So, is it possible that she's like telling the truth? Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, well, you've said, well, you've had five husbands. So is she saying that to avoid it? Or is she just straight up saying the truth and Jesus is applauding her for her honesty? Like, how how should we read it? Uh, okay, um. Okay, this is important. Someone just asked this question. Is he getting at that she did not lie because he wants uh, he, he, he wants that uh, to get away from the focus of forgiveness of sins? Possibly. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. We'll see where he's going to go with it. But I just want you to see that it's possible in your life and my life to tell the truth. But you're telling the truth in order to deceive. That's still a lie. <laughs> because you're, desi- you're telling the truth in order to deceive. Right. So just make it very clear. I've I've lied plenty of times by telling the truth. Countless times. I, oh, come on. I can't be the only one. Right. And I've lied countless of times by not telling the truth. Right. I mean, we've all we, I can't be the only, I keep hearing. Oh, oh, no, you're I guarantee you're guilty of the same. All right. Well, let's see why he makes this such a big deal. And I think often we, sometimes we kind of jump onto that. Oh, she's lying. She's hiding the facts, hiding the truth. Actually, Jesus acknowledges that what she has said is truthful. She has, she is not married. She has no husband. So that's the first dangerous assumption. Dangerous assumption number two is that Jesus condemns her for her sin. Now, it's interesting. When I started studying this passage a while back as I was doing a series for our church, I was just assuming, I was assuming that even though I've studied this passage many times and I've read through it, I've even preached through it, 
I was just assuming that Christ's interaction with the woman at this point in the text is to condemn her for her sin, that Jesus is going to condemn her for having been divorced five times. Jesus is going to condemn her for a lifestyle of sin. But what I found, the more that I just was willing to let the text speak to me and just just look at what's there, the reality is Jesus never condemns her for her sin. Now, that's not to say she's not a sinner. I'm not saying, please don't, please don't go away from this video saying Pastor Harry is saying that this woman wasn't a sinner. She is, just like you are, just like I am. I think, I think the danger, though, of us taking a passage like this. All right, uh, someone, and I think I understand what they're saying, but the one about her being dishonest isn't a result of presuppositions necessarily. I agree. I, I, don't, think, I don't think anyone, when we read that, the woman said, uh, I have no husband. I don't think that's because of someone's presupposition, because I think someone said, well, if you've been married and divorced five times, one of those marriages have to be still considered a marriage in the sight of God. So therefore, you're, she's lying, right? So I don't think that that's necessarily a presupposition. So, so I don't think it's fair to say other people, they've added their presupposition. Well, I, you could argue you're adding a presupposition that she's not lying. The point is we're all trying to deal with the text. We, we all, so I, I look, we always want to lay aside our presuppositions and we all can bring something into the text. We're all can be guilty of it. Well, I just think here that it depends on how you read the text. I don't even know if it really comes from a pre presupposition. Do you believe if a woman's been married and divorced five times that one of those marriages in the sight of God is still considered her husband spiritually? And is Jesus speaking of it from that perspective? Or is Jesus looking at it? Or is Jesus, or is Jesus just looking at it from a, a purely a uh, legalist or well, I'll say from a purely civil perspective. Well, from a civil perspective, you're right. You're right. You don't have a husband because none of your marriages are currently recognized by the law. Like you see, you look at, or is Jesus looking at it? No, uh, wait, no, you have five husbands. And, like how you read this, this has a lot to do with how you read it. So, and, and now I agree, it becomes a presupposition. Now this is where I will agree. I don't care which way you go with this. If you're relying on what you've heard before, and you're now reading that into the text the, the next time you read it, then you are reading your presupposition. But if you lay aside everything you've ever heard every time you read it, and you're like, well, how am I going to read this? Then it may not be based off a of presupposition. Presupposition is when you're bringing something from before to the text currently. So, but, all right. It's like he, he, he seems to very much want to get away. It seems like what his desire is, hey, this has nothing to do with sin. This entire story has been preached as Jesus is confronting a woman with her sin. And he's like, nope, that's not what's happening here. Yes, we, we build up their sin so that it makes us feel a little bit better because, man, if this woman is living this lifestyle, if she's done this, if she's done that, Jesus never confronts her for her sin. He never condemns her for her sin. He never says, I condemn you. In fact, I think it's interesting in a passage very similar to this, and I'm looking at my notes, I think it's in John chapter 8. Now, I would ask the question, you may be right. Jesus isn't condemning her, but is Jesus, in a sense, just giving her like, hey, uh, you, you know, for thou hast, uh, hang on, uh, Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. 
For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that sayest thou truly. Now, is Jesus saying that in a way? Like, it depends on how you read this. He's, he's just like, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. Well said. You're abs- or is Jesus saying, hey, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've got five, right? Is he saying this in such a way to bring conviction? Like, he he's not the one saying, I'm condemning you. He's just pointing out the reality of the situation where she will feel the weight of her own sin. Is he, is he, is Jesus just simply kind of restating the facts so that she will be convicted? Or is Jesus restating the facts saying, you're absolutely right. You've done nothing wrong. You're good to go. But this, this person has already acknowledged, no, she is a sinner. Well, then is Jesus, what is Jesus? Is, if, if, if you know she's a sinner, if Jesus knows she's a sinner, if she is a sinner, then is in a roundabout way, Jesus just kind of saying, well, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. Is that a way to say, are you convicted by this? Do you feel bad by, by this? Or do you read it like Jesus is just like, you're right. You've not done anything wrong. Is he saying she's done nothing wrong? How do we read this? Uh, Jesus is talking to the woman who's taken in adultery. You remember how the Pharisees' interesting passage demonstrates this truth. The Pharisees catch this woman in the act, and they only bring the woman. Think about that. They only bring the woman. They, 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 they caught her in the act. That means there's two of them, a man and a woman, and they only bring the woman. So they don't even recognize the fact that the man has committed adultery. They only take the woman and they bring her out and they're getting ready to stone her. And Jesus begins talking. He challenges the Pharisees. They walk away. Jesus is drawing in the sand. He looks up and he says, who's here to condemn you? And she says, no one. And what does Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, he recognizes her sin, but his job here is not to condemn. And I think that's a dangerous assumption about this passage, that Jesus is saying this to condemn her. She's already condemned because of her sin. But I think it's also dangerous to think that Jesus condemned her because she has been divorced five times, that somehow she had lived a promiscuous lifestyle. Please understand that's all an assumption based on our understanding of the text, but that's not what the text says. Do you realize the Bible says she's never been divorced five times? And you say, whoa, Pastor Harry, she had to have been divorced five times. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. It, it doesn't. Do you realize it's possible that she could have had five husbands that have died? Okay, that's a good point. I will give him that. Right? Maybe, maybe she has not been divorced five times. That that could be very well true. But we do know that the person she's currently living with is not her husband. And if she's engaged in physical reaction, physical relations with him, then that would be, well, sexual immorality, right? So so you may be right. Maybe, maybe she hasn't committed any sin in these five husbands. So I think that that is true. I think that, I think I will give him a, a point there. That's something we do have to consider. Does the text say she was married and divorced? That, that is, that is a good, that's a very good point. 
And I think I've always probably read it as she had been. So there I may stand corrected. That's why I have to continue to listen to as many things as possible and be challenged. That may be a very, very good point. Something we'll have to consider in our study this week. It's possible. And you would say, well, Pastor Harry, that... That that couldn't be the case because then that would mess up the whole the whole point that Jesus Christ is making. And I would say, I think it's a point that we've always assumed that Jesus Christ is making. Now, now wait a minute, though. Let's make it. Let's be careful because er, now we got to at least follow through logically. Remember, he said himself that the reason she came to the well in the middle of the day by herself is because she was viewed as scandalous. She was viewed as there was like, like there was something bad about her that no, nobody that no, she was an outcast. Everybody was like, Ooh, yeah. now was she, is it because she was living with a guy who wasn't her husband or is it because she'd been married and divorced five times? Like there had to be something going on in her life that was so scandalous that she felt she had to go in the middle of the day to the well when everyone else came early in the morning where it wasn't so hot and she had to come in the middle of the day by herself. Well, I mean, I I, I think like on one hand, you kind of paint the picture that this woman is scandalous and everyone's judging her and talking about her and condemning her. So she can't even go to the well with them. And then all of a sudden now you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, we're not for sure that it was that scandalous of a life. So was it or wasn't it? But if Jesus Christ was actually making that point, he would have made that point. But that's not what he does. Jesus Christ doesn't condemn her for her sin. That's an assumption we've always sort of added into the text. We've, we just make this assumption that she's lived a promiscuous lifestyle. In fact, it's an assumption that's really colored by our understanding, sort of, um, sort of our understanding of, of our concept of marriage and our belief on marriage. Someone just said I, had, I made a good catch that I caught some. Look at that. I did something right. Yes. Okay. No, thank you very much for, for the person who said that. It's always good to get an encouraging comment. So thank you very much. Marriage and the value of a husband and wife and the fact that we don't live under the law, but they did. And here's the danger in this. And we're going we're gonna to dig into it. Don't worry. We're going to dig into it and explain why that's a misunderstanding in the text. Imagine if my wife wrote me a letter. And she writes me this letter, and I open it, and I cherish it, and I read it over and over again, and I say, oh, this letter is a, is a visible reminder of my wife's undying love for me. And after a year or two of me cherishing that note, I keep it in my wallet. It's just an incredible example of my wife's love for me. Someone says, well, what does the note say? And I say, well, here you read it. And the note says, hey, can you grab some milk on your way home from town this afternoon? Now, if I am so concerned about what I think the letter represents, but I missed the actual point of the note and I didn't pick up the milk, then I've actually missed what she was asking me to do. I've, I've assumed something about the letter that the letter didn't really communicate. The letter simply said, pick up milk. You know, I think, I think in this passage, because our assumptions are that this woman was a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner that was living a promiscuous lifestyle that had been married five times and divorced, that because of that, Christ is condemning her for her sin, 
Therefore, this whole story is about the condemnation of sin and the miraculously her miraculous turn toward Christ from that wicked lifestyle. When actually this story isn't about that at all because that's not what the text says. What the Bible says is that, yes, she had been married five times. It's possible that those five husbands had died. But the reality is this was a woman that was thirsty. She didn't lie. She didn't have a husband. She, uh, here, here's, some, here's some things that we bring into our culture about this concept, okay? First of all, our culture, we recognize from, from progressive revelation, as we, as we look at the scriptures, as we look at God's word, we recognize that marriage is between two people committed to that relationship, equal in value and importance, and equal in responsibility before God. And we recognize that. Now, there are roles in the marriage relationship. The husband and the wife have different roles. God, God gives different authority within the home. I get all of that. But we recognize that when it comes to a marriage working, there are, there are both sides that have to function together. Um, and that's, that's how we see it played out in the New Testament as Paul explains to us truths about the marriage relationship. But that's not the way it was explained in the Old Testament. In fact, do you realize in the Old Testament, women were property? I already read for you or mentioned to you Exodus chapter 20, uh, Deuteronomy 25, another passage where if a woman marries a brother, and I want you to just notice this. There's nothing wrong with this passage, but notice how a woman has no say-so in who she's marrying. Uh, A woman marries a, a, a man. They don't have children. The man dies. So according to the law, the woman now marries, is supposed to marry the brother of that man, and she's supposed to then have a child by him that is then include, that, that takes the name of her first husband so that the land, the property that God has given to them in the covenant can be passed down to his family. So his name does not end. And we understand how all of that connects to the law, But you do realize in that circumstance, the woman has no say-so in who she's marrying. She has no no say-so in this. In fact, even the Pharisees use this exact example in the book of Mark. I believe it's chapter 14, Mark chapter 12. This is interesting. I'm trying to figure out where he's going with this, right? So he just wants to like, so what does he define as thirst? Her problem was thirst. Third, is, is it sin and our lack of salvation that creates the thirst and salvation is what quenches the thirst? Or is this just she's thirsty because she lives a life where she has, she's so unhappy and, uns- and, and dissatisfied and, and, because, and she has a lack of satisfaction in her life that Jesus, once she gets Jesus, she's going to be perfectly happy and perfectly satisfied. And she's not going to care about husbands or any of that anymore. Like, I, it's just so weird. Like, where, where is he going with this? Well, let's find out. We're almost done. Where they're trying to trip up Jesus and they say, what happens if this happened five times? And then in the day of the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? That's the question they ask. Do you realize this Samaritan woman could have been in that exact same circumstance? She could have been married five times to five different brothers who had all died. She didn't have children with each of them. And the question that the Pharisees are asking is, whose wife really is she? Do you realize she could be in that exact circumstance? We, we, we just assume that because she's been married five times that she must have been divorced 
which in our view, which in our minds, our 2020 or 20th century minds, 21st century minds, we, we recognize biblically puts her as equally responsible. But do you realize that in the Old Testament, women weren't responsible for divorce? Even, even if she had been divorced five times, which the Bible doesn't tell us that, but even if she had been divorced five times, do you realize that the responsibility of that divorce is always on the husband? Now, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. But doesn't Jesus say, if you put her away and she gets married, or if someone marries her, they it becomes adultery. Doesn't Jesus... Hang on, where is the passage? Where, hang on, where is the passage? Let me see if I can find it. See if I can find it. Because... Um, Okay, uh, Matthew 5, I believe 31. If it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a, 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 writ, a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So that, that seems to say, no, the woman can be considered committing adultery herself. So he, he seems to be forgetting this. He's like, no, 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 the responsibility is just on the man. Jesus seems to say, well, no, if you divorce her the wrong way, then she can be committing adultery. That, like, and then someone who marries her, they would be committing adultery. So this would seem to say Jesus is saying, no, she could be con- can, can be condemned for it as well. She would bear responsibility as well. Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man take a wife and marry her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because she hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his, and send her out of his house. And you say, well, that's evidence right there that this woman, if she's divorced, was probably because she had been unfaithful. Well, maybe. The, the Bible doesn't tell us that. Jesus actually doesn't tell us that's the case. But, but you notice that in that case, it's the men that were writing the divorcement. Now, this whole passage was given. We're not done with Deuteronomy. He's not reading the Matthew passage, though. Jesus re- makes a reference to the Deuteronomy, but then he, add, he, he brings it over and he's like, but look, if you put her away, then she could commit adultery. Like he, he, he's leaving that conveniently out of this discussion. 24, by the way. This whole passage was given to be restrictive, but what the what the Jews were doing, what the Samaritans were doing, is they were using it to become they were using it to become permissive, and we know that's the case because in Matthew chapter nineteen, the Pharisees try to trip up Jesus by asking him a question about this issue, about this very law, and the question is: is it is it legal? Is it right for a man to put away his wife for any cause? And that's the word they use for any cause. Is it okay for a man to just put away his wife and write her a bill of divorcement? And they are actually referencing back to this passage. Now, Jesus says, no, it's not right. But the reason why Jesus has to say it's not right to their question is because that was what was happening. It wasn't right, but it's what was happening. For, for any reason, for, for trivial reasons, this is just historical fact, for trivial reasons, Jewish men were being given permission to write a bill of divorcement to their wives. 
In fact, read with me then in verse number two. We just read in in Deuteronomy 24, verse one, verse two says, and when she has departed out of his house, she may go and become another man's wife. Do you see that? Do you see how that's written in the law? If she is if she is put away by a man, verse two says, when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Oh, Pastor Harry, how in the world can that be? Well, verse three, and if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her, took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. Uh, what, what we find in this passage is not permission. It's, 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 it's intended to be restrictive on what God found to be an abomination. He's describing what was happening. He's saying this is an abomination. And what was happening is the culture was using it as permissive. But you do see in the passage, it says that. Um, it's talking about she may go and be another man's wife. And they assumed that meant. Why is he forgetting what Jesus says? <laughs> Jesus literally says, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a, writ- a writing of divorcement. That's from Deuteronomy. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Now, that fornication, we have to go, what is that fornication? And we that's where the debate rages, right? It doesn't say because of adultery. It says of fornication. And the issue is the fornication there is if he finds her have committed fornication during the betrothment stage, then he could put her away, right? That, that it's a completely different concept, but our, we, we won't get into all of that. He, I don't know where he's going. Is, is his whole point of this message is she's just thirsty because... These men have, well, I mean, well, one, I don't know. He he's, he seemed to be going with the idea that these men died. So I I don't know. What, what is she thirsty from? From a messed up legal system about divorcement where the men could just get rid of her. So she's thirsty or is she thirsty because all of her husbands died? Like, what is she thirsty for? She had permission. So we see right here in Deuteronomy 24, that if this woman was divorced, that she sort of has the leeway scripturally, according to the law of Moses, to go and remarry again. What about what Jesus said? And this would happen over and over again. Men were divorcing their wives. These were leaving women vulnerable vulnerable, and broken. They had no, no means to support their family. They had no home. They were worn. They were emotionally scarred. They had no options. And so when this woman had been, if you look at it this way, even if we're talking about divorce, this woman had possibly, and actually it's more likely in this culture, had possibly been used and abused and thrown away and tossed aside by five different men. And in doing so, she is Okay, so now he's going back with the divorce. So so he, he wants us to not think that, hey, it doesn't actually say she was divorced. These men could have just died. But now he wants to really drive home. No, she's been used and abused by all, by five men. So I, I, <laughs> I, what's the issue in the text? Left broken, helpless. She's scarred. She's hurting. 
And the only thing she has left is to look for the Messiah. And what we find in this passage is a thirst for the Messiah. Look in verse number Look in verse number 25. Jesus, Jesus in verse 21 through 24 is going to describe when the Son of Man cometh. In verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he has come, he will tell us all things. She recognizes that the Messiah is coming, and there's a thirst, and there's a hunger for that. She's thirsty. So, is she saved? Like, saved people are looking for the Messiah. Like, or, I'm sorry, lost people were looking for the Messiah. I guess maybe looking, was she looking for the Messiah in a spiritual way? Or was she looking for the Messiah as a conquering way? Like, like I, 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 that's, the thirst is thirsting for the coming Messiah. Like, that, that's the thirst? And Jesus offers water that will satisfy her thirst. Hey, three things I want us to finish with. Number one, sin is not mentioned once in John 4, 5 through 42. Not once. Jesus Jesus does not talk about sin. He does not address sin. If this passage was about sin, then I sure think Jesus would have talked about it. Number two, Jesus didn't offer her water to make her clean. Jesus offered her water to quench her spiritual thirst. Number three, Jesus did not condemn her for wretchedness. She was a used, broken, and scarred woman, and Jesus just shows mercy to her. Jesus just shows kindness. He takes that that conversation, and he redeems that conversation. So it's not just about water. It's not just about Jacob's well. But Jesus recognizes that He has the eternal life, the water that if she drinks from spiritually, she will never thirst. Now he's going back to, (laughs) did she? (laughs) Okay, someone said he is making some good points, but for someone trying not to read into the text, there's a lot of that happening. It it, it feels that way to me, but I just, I'm so confused. Like, hey, divorce is not mentioned, but then she's like, then he's, then he flips around was like, hey, this woman's been abused and abused and, and, and she's thirsting for the Messiah. So is the thirst thirsting for Messiah? And now he's back that the water is everlasting life. So did he give her, is she lost or is she saved? Is the thirst thirsting because of sin? Sin leaves us thirsty. Sin leaves us broken and longing. And Jesus is the only one that can satisfy that thirst for salvation. In other words, we're thirsting for something. We may not know what it is, but we're thirsting. And and Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that. And the satisfaction is salvation. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't really know what the overall takeaway is as well. I'm somewhat baffled by it. It's like, hey, hey, sin is not mentioned. Divorce is not mentioned. But this woman was used and abused by men who divorced her. (laughs) And she was left thirsty for the Messiah. So the thirst, Jesus comes to give you eternal life for those who are thirsty for the Messiah. Is that the point? Like I, I don't know if I, I, I do not know. And and someone uh, referred to me as Mister Thirteen Point Five. I better get at least a twenty for this because uh, because I mean, come on. I think I think maybe at least a fifty. All right, don't don't rate me as a thirteen point. I've at least a fifty for this. All right, but um, I, I yeah, I'm joking. I I don't have a good answer 
I don't have a good answer for this. But that's good. This, that's good because it's Saturday. We got all week to work on John chapter four. So what do you think? This is what I want you to do. I've given you your assignments, right? I've given you your assignments today. I've, I've given you things to start working on, right? Today, remember, you're supposed to be fo- focusing on the church of St. Uh, Fotina or Fatina, and you're supposed to do a lot of work on Fotini or Fatini or Fatanai, uh, the way someone else pronounced it. You're supposed to be doing a little bit of work on her tomorrow. We need to find sermons from Greek Orthodox churches because tomorrow is the day that St. Fotini is remembered. And that's the woman at the well, this woman that we've been talking about now for over an hour today. Um, and uh, that, that's your work. But I want you to just, as you read John 4 over and 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 over again, what do you think is the main takeaway from the passage? What do you think the main takeaway is from the passage? And what is that thirst? I think that in, in my orig- original things of giving you something to work on, if you remember, um, I, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I, I did tell you how do we drink and what does it mean that we never thirst, but I guess we need to just write down what is the thirst? What is the thirst Jesus is referencing? Hey, if you drink, but see, I think, isn't it the point that if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty? Isn't her original thirst, isn't her thirst for physical water? And Jesus is like, that's going to leave you thirsty. But I can give you a water where you'll never thirst again. And what he's referencing there is you'll you'll never thirst for salvation. You'll never be lacking salvation. I, I think Jesus is just referencing salvation here. I, I, because is her problem thirst? I, 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 yeah, I'm not, mm, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with this one. I'm struggling a little bit one with this one, but I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there because we're an hour and 17 minutes. I'll leave it there. All right. Start talking, start working on it. I just, I'm leaving us with all kinds of like, well, I don't know for sure. I'm just leaving it there. Just leaving it there. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Oh, I, there's so many, there's so much we did not answer there, but hopefully this sparks a lot of good conversation. So as much as I may have just disagreed with some of that and a little frustrated by it, that has to get you at least interested in the text. That has to at least accomplish that, Right. I hope so. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Or start discussing it immediately in the Discord channel. Thanks for listening. God bless.